Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 3.16, Slave Rebellions. As the population of slaves in the colonies increased, a growing fear gnawed at the colonists. Along with greater slave populations came an increased risk of slave rebellions. Really, there was little that concerned slave owners and the population alike more than the prospect of a slave uprising. It is from this fear of potential uprisings that we see the proliferation of slave codes, codes that were intended to ameliorate the greatest fears of the colonists. This is what we talked about in our last episode. However, despite the efforts of colonial governments to hold slaves in check, the threat of rebellion was not purely theoretical. Rebellions did in fact take place. This week, we are going to spend our time looking at a few of the larger slave rebellions in colonial history, as well as their effect on the colonial system as a whole. While urban slave revolts presented a unique set of dangers, it is in the South where we see that rapidly growing population of slaves, where there existed a continuous fear of uprisings. Of all the slave rebellions that broke out in the colonial United States, possibly none is more famous than one that took place along the Stono River in South Carolina in 1739. Rounding up a year to 1740, South Carolina had a total population of around 45,000, of which 30,000 were slaves. While other colonies had more slaves than South Carolina, Virginia by this point had over 60,000, none of the other colonies were living in a place where slaves made up a greater percentage of the overall population. In fact, South Carolina was the only colony where a majority of the population was being held in bondage. With South Carolina's slave population making up two-thirds of the overall population of the colony, it means that there was constant concern within the colony of slave revolt. As we discussed last time, Colonists were not oblivious to these numbers. They had zero interest in getting stuck fighting a slave rebellion, where they were so completely outnumbered. What this meant in practice is that South Carolina would come to develop some of the strictest slave codes in the entire colonial system. What emerged as a result of these codes was a brutal cycle. As the slave population grew and the South Carolina colonists became increasingly concerned about the risks of a slave rebellion, they passed increasingly draconian slave laws to hold their slaves in check. This, of course, proved unpopular amongst the slaves, which only increased their hostility, thus making an uprising more likely. South Carolina was more liberal in their use of extreme physical punishments than were the other colonies. While whippings were fair game everywhere, South Carolina allowed for punishments ranging from mutilations, castrations, to outright executions. Reports out of South Carolina included examples of horrific, torturous deaths. One such story from 1713 had a slave being placed alive into a small coffin-shaped box that nearly completely restricted his movement. The box was left exposed to the elements, where the person inside was left to die, either from starvation or heat stroke, whichever came first. In that case, the slave's son allegedly snuck his father a knife, allowing the man to kill himself. The crime that the man was being punished for? He had apparently lost a bundle of rice. 
Conditions for slaves in South Carolina during the first half of the 18th century were the worst in the North American colonies. While the harshness of the laws were always intended to keep slaves from being able to rebel, there still remained a near-constant fear that just such a rebellion was looming on the horizon. The colonists were right. A rebellion was looming, and their fears would be realized on September 9, 1739. That morning, a group of around 20 slaves gathered, some 20 miles west of Charlestown, which, just for reference, would later become modern-day Charleston. We do not know a lot about the actual process of planning the rebellion. We do, however, know that it was a slave named Jemmy, who was the ringleader. Unfortunately, we know little else about his planning for the rebellion. Equipped primarily with small arms, the group marched south, heading, it appears, ultimately toward St. Augustine. Along the way, they killed colonists who came across their path and burned houses as they moved. They likewise also played drums to help attract people to their cause, undoubtedly hoping for more slaves to throw off their chains and join in the uprising. Though this had the unfortunate effect of making them much easier to find by people who were less inclined to approve of their actions. By the late afternoon, the group had increased their size to as many as 100. Near the town of Jacksonboro, the slaves were engaged by a group of armed farmers. It is unclear what their numbers were, though the slaves still likely outnumbered them at this point. Either way, a firefight ensued. About a third of the slaves were either captured or killed, with the rest escaping into the local woods. The South Carolina militia was deployed, and within days, most of the slaves who had escaped were either captured or killed as well. Following another major engagement about a week later, the militia prevailed, and the rebellion came to an end. For those who were captured, the militia acted with a marked brutality. Summary executions were absolutely on the table. Some of those who had been captured were later burned alive and dismembered. Other reports claim that some were tied to trees, allowing wildlife to eat them. Without any question, the entire affair was brutal and ugly. In the wake of the Stono Rebellion, we are left with two primary questions that we must now turn towards. The first question is, what was it in September of 1739 that sparked the rebellion in the first place? It is not as though conditions had not been awful for a while. So, why is this when the uprising came? The second question goes to the lessons learned from Stono, if any were learned at all. As to the first question, there are several potential causes for the Stono Rebellion. However, at the very top of that list comes potential conflict with Spain. Spain and Britain had spent the first half of the 18th century in a Cold War. From the end of Queen Anne's War to the beginning of the War of Jenkins' Ear, which will begin at the end of 1739, the two powers had spent years in a tense state. One of the moves by the Spanish was to offer freedom to any slave who managed to escape down to St. Augustine. This was almost certainly the end goal for the slaves in the Stono Rebellion. This has typically been taught as the main reason for their escape. Well, not incorrect. It is worth considering, however, that the Spanish had, for some time, been offering freedom to escaped slaves. This was nothing new. St. Augustine, therefore, remained a target for many of those who escaped bondage in South Carolina. 
Considering that St. Augustine had been a slave refuge for years, it alone cannot explain the timing of the rebellion. One potential factor was that at the same time as the rebellion, the colony was dealing with a serious outbreak of yellow fever. This would have presented slaves thinking about escaping with a potentially weakened response to a mass slave exodus. Likewise, changing laws in the colony would soon make things a whole lot more difficult. On August 18th, the Security Act was passed in the colony. The Security Act stated that all white males were now required to come to church on Sunday armed. As it was, Sunday was always the best day to escape if you were a slave. When the white colonists went to church, it opened up a window of opportunity. It was a time when slaves had greater leeway to get away with potential misdeeds, because all of the whites were off at church. Cognizant of this risk, the South Carolina government went ahead and passed the Security Acts. The purpose of the law being that if the slaves did indeed decide that Sunday morning was when they wanted to launch a rebellion, the local white population was armed and ready for a quick response. The law was set to become effective on September 29th. The colonists were correct in thinking that if something was going to happen, it was going to come on a Sunday. Sure enough, the Stono Rebellion began on a Sunday while everybody was off at church. Practically, it would make sense that if there were any thoughts of a rebellion, the time to act would be prior to the 29th, when the Security Act went into law. The Stono Rebellion came on September the 9th, so a few weeks before the new laws took effect. Likewise, the decision to enact the law in the first place may show that there was already active concerns in the colony that a rebellion was looming. Well, the timing of the rebellion seems to have been motivated by pragmatism. It was a good chance to escape before the situation became more dangerous than it already was. Beyond pure pragmatism, there is some evidence that religious considerations also played a role in the uprising's timing. The weekend of the rebellion included the day of the Nativity of the Virgin Mary. With many slaves having been converted over to Catholicism, it is at least possible that they were waiting for a religiously significant moment before they made their move. However, while that lines up and is at least worthy of a mention, ultimately the decision to rebel in South Carolina looks more like a decision that was based on advantageous timing than anything else. September 9th, 1739 was a seemingly ideal date for a rebellion. For the slaves who participated, they knew that hostilities between Spain and Britain were on the rise. Already for years, Spain had appeared willing to free slaves that made it to St. Augustine. By the time the Stono Rebellion strikes, we are just about six weeks away from the onset of the War of Jenkins' Year between the Spanish and the British. Already, however, by that September, relations between the English and the Spanish were at a low point. The Cold War was quickly warming up as the threat of war grew. If there had ever been a point where Spain would make good on their promise of freedom to slaves who made it to Spanish Florida, it was now. With the clouds of war brewing, the slaves were presented with a yellow fever epidemic that further weakened the colonists. Among the colonists, many were sick, dying, or caring for those who were sick and dying. This left the slaves with a weakened owner class. The Security Act would become active in just a few short weeks, meaning that time was of the essence. 
if they were going to move, they would not get a better opportunity. Delay would create further dangers, thus reducing the chance of success. In this way, the Stono Rebellion seems to have found its timing out of necessity, rather than there being a single catalyst that pushed the events forward when it did, it was a situation where the stars aligned. It was now, or possibly never. More curious, and something that seems more elusive, is the question of if this decision to rebel was spontaneous, or if it was something that was planned out well in advance, and then rushed forward in order to attack during this narrow window. It is possible that the Security Act a few weeks prior was in response to rumblings of a coming slave rebellion. However, it is also possible that the owners in South Carolina saw potential rebellions everywhere they looked, and the timing of the passage of the law was coincidental. If it was something that was being planned, one must wonder if the rebellion was moved forward to avoid the coming Security Act, and, if that is the case, what effect that had on the overall success of the plan. Well, the rebellion was ultimately a failure, Stono would produce a surprising effect on the colony. We talked earlier about the brutality of the reprisals following the rebellion. Recall that beyond summary executions, others were burned alive, and some were hung up and left to die from local wildlife and exposure to the elements. Surprisingly, this went too far for just about everybody. As I've already stated, conditions for slaves in South Carolina were the worst amongst anywhere in the North American British colonies. Slaves were treated poorly in the colony and were often subject to especially severe punishments. The colonial leadership came to realize in the aftermath of Stono just how serious a problem this was when it came to controlling the local slave population. If the punishments were so harsh and arbitrary that slaves had little to lose by rebelling, then those punishments did little to keep the colony safe. The aftermath of the Stono Rebellion, therefore, is a time where we see slave codes in South Carolina actually loosen up. Among the things that the colonial authorities directly addressed was the cruelty that owners could exercise over their slaves. Owners lost the ability to mutilate and maim their slaves. No longer would they cut out tongues or eyes of slaves, burn them alive, remove limbs, or castrate them. The official stated reason for these changes is that the behavior was unbecoming of Christians, something that the owners professed to be. While whippings did remain a standard punishment, the worst successes of the owners were curbed as a result of the rebellion. Likewise, the new code stated that slaves must be treated with at least a minimum amount of humanity. Owners had to make sure that they were fed and clothed adequately. Finally, slaves were not required to work on Sundays unless it was absolutely necessary. Of course, not that slaves were suddenly being treated well. Being fed and clothed adequately should not be taken to mean that they were being fed and clothed well. The purpose of these changes was not to make life good for the slaves, but it was rather to curb the rampant cruelty taking place. The owners in this situation realized that such gross mistreatments were likely to encourage future rebellions, and with the number of slaves in the colony so completely outnumbering the white colonists, such rebellions needed to be held in check. In 1739, the colonists had gotten lucky. The rebellion never grew to where it became uncontrollable. 
while there may have been upwards of 100 slaves involved, that number was always going to be wholly insufficient to have had a meaningful chance of success. With 30,000 slaves in the colony, however, everybody recognized that next time an uprising might not be as limited. Well, the hope was that by allowing for better working conditions, it would, at the very least, make an uprising less of a risk. Everybody recognized that they were still living in a very dangerous situation. Slave rebellions were not uniquely a southern phenomenon. Well, those living on plantations were spread out. Slaves in urban environments lived very different lives. There were very major differences when it came to urban slavery versus slavery on plantations. Much of this stemmed from the fact that those living in an urban environment typically had less need for labor. Therefore, you had fewer slaves as compared to the far more labor-intensive plantations in the South. Despite this, slavery still existed in the major urban areas. We are going to explore this concept more next time. However, among the places with a very significant slave population was New York. For reasons that will make more sense in a little while, we are going to travel back to 1712 New York and look at the tensions that would lead the colony to being gripped by a rebellion. The New York colony in 1710 had a population of right around 21,500. Among those numbers, there were just over 2,250 slaves. With approximately 10% of the population being held in bondage, New York stood in a somewhat weird spot. New York had a higher number of slaves than the other northern colonies, however, still considerably less than the southern colonies. It is also worth noting that we are not simply talking about New York City here, but the entire colonial population. However, in a place like New York City, where most of the population did in fact live, you often had slaves living in close quarters with their owners. Unlike in the South, there was no chance to have a separate dwelling for the slaves. Rather, they often slept in attics and basements. Because of this, those in urban environments often had much to fear from their slaves. Well, down in the South, it was the sheer population of slaves that made everybody uneasy. In a place like New York, it was the fact that everybody was jammed in so close together. With slaves and owners living in the same house, should a slave decide that they wanted to kill their owner, it was a far easier thing to accomplish as compared to a large plantation in the South. Should slaves want to gather and plan a rebellion, you had a large number of slaves living in very close proximity to each other. This, of course, created stresses that were going to differ from what we see in the southern plantation colonies. Slavery was likewise used differently in urban environments as opposed to on a plantation. In South Carolina, slaves were needed to help harvest the extremely labor-intensive rice crops. In Virginia, it was the tobacco plantations that the slaves needed to work. Again, these were very demanding crops and required a large number of man-hours to properly tend. New York City, however, was a different place altogether. There were no plantations to tend. Therefore, rather than working in the fields as in the south, in the north, slaves often found themselves being used in the role of domestic servants. This meant that, mostly, you lacked the huge slave owners that were present in the south. Most people in New York had far less of a demand for labor 
and accordingly owned fewer slaves. However, despite not surviving on a plantation-based economy, life for slaves in New York was still a hard existence. By 1712, the slave population of New York had reached a breaking point. Exhausted and angry at being overworked, on March 25, 1712, a group of slaves held a meeting to discuss their conditions and what their options were. Large-scale meetings of slaves in New York were always an easier affair than in the South. Plantations were spread out, which made meetings impractical. Slave owners in the South ideally did not want their slaves having anything to do with the slaves of other plantations. Such communication was dangerous, as it would allow for the free flow of ideas and complaints about their discontent. With plantations being so spread out, preventing such meetings was a goal that was often achievable. Not that slaves from different plantations never met up and talked. They did. It was simply more difficult in the South. In a crowded urban environment, such as New York, commingling between slaves owned by different people was a much easier task. A meeting like what took place on March 25th was something far easier to organize and conduct than it would have been on a southern plantation. Little is known about the exact series of events that took place at the meeting that night. However, what appears to have happened is that the slaves in attendance entered into a pact. They were going to burn New York and kill every white person in the city. On the night of Sunday, April 6, 1712, they put the plan into action. Somewhere between 25 to 50 black men and women came together carrying an assortment of weapons, including some guns, swords, and clubs. Really, anything that they could get their hands on that could inflict some damage. The group began by lighting buildings on fire. As the colonists rushed out to put out the flames, the slaves attacked. By the end of the night, nine colonists lie dead, with another seven injured. Of those involved was a slave named Tom, who had shot slave owner Andres Beckman in the chest. I bring up Tom in particular, because he is a name that I want you to remember going into our next episode. I also wanted to touch briefly on Tom's owner, Nicholas Roosevelt. We are going to see next time the events that transpired in 1741 New York are linked to both Tom and the Roosevelts. I wanted to bring attention to this now because when we talk about the generational fear that surrounds slave revolts, this will prove to be a good example. Before moving on, because I'm sure some of you were wondering about a guy with the last name Roosevelt who lives in New York. Nicholas Roosevelt is related to the future presidents. Nicholas Roosevelt is the four times great-grandfather to both Theodore and Franklin Roosevelt. Nicholas is, in fact, the final common ancestor between the two men, as the family would end up splitting into the Oyster Bay and Hyde Park factions. Returning to the rebellion, with pandemonium in the streets, the colonial governor, Robert Hunter, fired the cannons located at Fort George and ordered a detachment to go deal with the uprising. Realizing that they were about to be seriously outnumbered and outgunned, the slaves fled into the nearby woods. This would, however, provide only a brief moment of protection and safety as the New York militia swept through the island. The militia captured nearly all of the slaves who had taken part in the rebellion, with a handful of others being able to commit suicide before being captured. The New York rebellion had lasted less than a day, 
However, it would have long-lasting repercussions for the colony. What would follow in the immediate aftermath of the rebellion was a quick series of trials, which, unsurprisingly, led to convictions for all those involved. We know that by the time April 20th rolls around, just a few weeks after the rebellion, executions were already being carried out. They sentenced 19 to death, 3 women and 16 men. While the majority were hung, a handful were subjected to far more horrific deaths. This included at least one slave being hung up alive, another being broken on the wheel, and a final slave being burnt at the stake. There are a handful of key points that we can gather from an examination of the 1712 slave revolt. First, it should dispel the idea that slavery was purely something that existed in the southern colonies. As the 18th century progresses, slavery will indeed become far more concentrated in the south, as the number of slaves grows exponentially in that region, while it does fade out in the northern colonies. However, for the first half of the 18th century, slavery was widespread throughout all of the colonies. Next time, we are going to go further with that topic and look at the longer-term effects of the 1712 rebellion on New York. What would emerge in the decades to follow, though, was a deep paranoia and a fear of the slave population. These fears would fester for nearly 30 years before exploding outward in 1741. Interestingly, the 1712 rebellion also tells us something about the makeup of New York City during the early 18th century. Among those who had died were three Englishmen, three French, two Dutch, and a German. It is far more difficult to figure out the birthplaces of those slaves who were executed, though it is thought that many of them had been born in the region around modern-day Angola. Slave rebellions were, for slave owners, the nightmare that they all sought to avoid. Beyond the immediate death and destruction that followed a rebellion, there came an aftermath of fear and terror for the owners. These fears often manifested themselves in new and harsher slave codes. These codes would make the living conditions for those enslaved that much worse, and would thus increase their desire to rebel. For those who were being held in bondage, the rebellions in Stono and in New York had a different effect. They filled the slaves with hope and presented them with information that launching rebellions was something that was at least possible. News of these rebellions spread throughout the colonies to the different slaves and were almost always positively received. This was something that was not simply limited to rebellions inside of the North American colonies either. We know, for instance, that slaves involved in the 1741 uprising in New York were aware of events not only from 1712 and Stono, but rebellions that took place in the Caribbean as well. For example, they knew of free slave holdouts in Jamaica, where escaped slaves would fend off attempts to re-enslave them. They knew about a rebellion on the Dutch island of St. John's in 1733 that saw slaves throw off their bondage, capture the island, and hold it for six months. It mattered little to them that not all of these events took place in the North American colonies. These stories spread with surprising ease between the slave populations, generally as a result of the sale of slaves. All it took was for one slave to be sold who had knowledge of a rebellion. When they were integrated with their fellow slaves in a new location, 
they could tell the story. Suddenly, you have a brand new group that is aware of the information. As soon as one slave on this plantation, a slave who has now heard the stories of rebellion, was sold off to another plantation, the story would spread again. It is through these methods that information did travel throughout the Caribbean and into the colonies. This information about revolts would help to fuel future rebellions. Unsurprisingly, colonists did everything they could to stop this free flow of information. The very last thing that slave owners wanted was to have slaves aware of violence being carried out by other slaves. This is amongst the reasons why you see slave codes emerge that limit the size of how many slaves can gather together. The hope is that by limiting the number of slaves together at any given time, you can better control the free flow of information moving between them. This, however, did little in reality to stem the flow of information. Therefore, throughout the colonies, news spread amongst slave populations readily whenever slaves elsewhere stood up and fought back. By the time that 1741 rolls around, for all that had changed in New York, so much remained the same. Ever since the Rebellion of 1712, the colonists in the city had been nervous. New York was becoming an increasingly urban metropolitan place. The population was rising, and things such as theaters had begun popping up. By the time that 1741 arrives, the population of the city exceeded 10,000, with nearly 20% of those being slaves. The generation of 1712 had grown old, and many of them had since died. Their children had replaced them in terms of who was controlling the colony. Nicholas Roosevelt, for instance, died in 1742, and therefore had become an old man when the 1741 rebellion broke out. It was now his son, John Roosevelt, who was at the peak of his career. Despite this, however, the children from 1712 would grow up remembering what had gone down on that April night. They grew up as a population that continued to both hold and depend on their slaves, while living in perpetual fear that those same slaves were going to rise up and slaughter them all. As soon as the colonists got even the slightest sniff of a problem in 1741, the entire situation would rapidly progress from a snowball into a full-fledged avalanche. Next time, we are going to examine the cost of living with the constant fear of a slave revolt for 30 years. We are going to examine what exactly happened in 1741 that would set off a massive ripple effect of accusations, trials, and brutal executions that would consume New York for much of that year. These events would touch on nearly every aspect of life in the colony and would ultimately draw comparisons with the 1692 witchcraft trials in Salem. With that, I hope you all have an excellent two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and staying safe. And I will see you back here next time to discuss exactly what happened in New York during 17... 17- 41.